We're beginning a new sermon series this morning, which I'm going to say a little bit more about in just a moment. Before we read the Word of God, let us turn to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us now to turn our hearts and our attention to you, to come humbly before you to hear what you will speak to us today through the power of your Spirit. Help us in faith to receive it. For we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John chapter 13 verses 1 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Over the next 
few weeks as we move through the season of Lent, which begins this coming Wednesday, we're going to be going through chapters 13 through 17 of John's gospel. And there's a reason, a good reason, why we're going through these particular chapters during this season, which serves as a time of preparation before the celebration of Easter. You see, these chapters make up what has been referred to as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. If you remember, the upper room is where Jesus shared his final meal with his disciples before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. So these chapters provide insight into the final hours that Jesus spends with his disciples. They contain his farewell to his disciples before his crucifixion. And as we will see this morning and in the weeks to come, Jesus uses this time not only to share one last meal with his disciples, not only to say goodbye to them, but also to continue to teach them and now to prepare them for what is to come. As Jesus prepares for his own crucifixion, he doesn't want to leave his disciples unprepared. He wants to ready them for what is to come, life without his physical presence. He knows the challenges they will face. The disciples will have a great and difficult journey ahead of them as they seek to fulfill the great commission that Jesus will give to them before his ascension to the right hand of his heavenly Father. So if we had been going through John's gospel up to this point, we would notice that there is a significant shift that occurs here in chapter 13. No longer is Jesus engaged in public ministry, as it were, as he had been in the first 12 chapters of John. As one biblical scholar puts it, for five uninterrupted chapters, Jesus will concentrate exclusively and passionately on his disciples, on his own on his earliest church of all, a group of people who exist for the sake of God's still deeply loved world. So Jesus here in chapter 13 turns his attention wholly, singularly to the disciples. Therefore, what we find in these five chapters is an intensive discipleship course taught by the great teacher himself for his closest disciples. So as one biblical scholar notes, we are on holy ground in these chapters. What a wonderful way for us as a congregation to spend the season of Lent, residing for these weeks on this holy ground and enrolling ourselves in this school of discipleship where we will discover what it means to pick up our cross and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as we begin, we should notice that there isn't just a shift in focus with Jesus' audience in teaching. With this change of focus comes some changes in language that are noteworthy. You see, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel are devoted to Jesus seeking in every possible way to reach his dark and feebled world with his light and life. If we were to go back through these chapters, you would find the word life used some 50 times and the word light used 32 times. In those same 12 chapters, the word love 
agape is used just six times. Now, that might be surprising to us because when we think about God's love, we probably think of John's gospel because of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But the reality is love only now comes in like an avalanche. In these five chapters, we will find this word used 31 times. And we shouldn't miss the focus on love in these chapters because it communicates very clearly about how Jesus feels about his church. The school of discipleship is being given in his great love for them. And it's also given to call his church to follow him as he seeks to shine the light of his love to the world through them. So notice how chapter 13 begins. Knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that the crucifixion was coming. The days ahead weren't going to catch him unaware. His impending death was not an unexpected tragedy. It wasn't beyond his knowledge or out of his control. Verse 3 tells us Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands. And this passage makes very clear that Jesus was well aware of all that was happening, including his betrayal by Judas. And it was all according to God's perfect plan to rescue those whom Jesus had come to save. Moreover, the reality that John presents us with in this first verse of chapter 13 is that Jesus' descent into death would not end in defeat, but would result in victory as Jesus accomplishes his mission and returns to his place of power and glory at the right hand of God the Father. And his love for his disciples that is referred to here in this first verse needs to be understood in this light. What's being said here is not simply that Jesus loved his disciples, his own, up to the point of his earthly death. These words carry a much deeper and richer meaning. They're not simply carrying the connotation that he loved them until his death. They are also carrying a connotation of completion. They are telling us that Jesus' death is because of his love for his own. That he loved his disciples completely, perfectly, to the uttermost, even to the depths of death. And his sacrificial death demonstrates the extent of his love for them. And as Jesus begins his school of discipleship here in chapter 13, he begins it with an extraordinary demonstration of the depth of his love for his disciples, that they might see and know his love and better understand his sacrificial death. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And if this passage is familiar to us, let's not, let's be sure not to miss the significance of what's happening here. Washing the feet of another was a task reserved 
for slaves. It was a nasty task. Can you imagine the feet of someone in Jesus' day who walked around in sandals in a hot and dusty environment? And add to that the fact that they were also in Jerusalem in an urban environment walking through streets with open sewage and filled with animals. Do the math about the state of cleanliness of their feet. And so don't fail to be amazed that we find Jesus, the Son of God Almighty, on his hands and his knees, literally washing the excrement off the feet of his disciples. We have one who is divine, stooping low, all the way to the feet of those he loves, doing the task usually reserved for a slave. Don't miss it. There is no parallel in ancient literature of a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. And Jesus is not simply of superior status. He is God. This is a very real demonstration of the extent of Jesus' love for his disciples. But this isn't just about washing feet, is it? There's much, much more going on here. The whole act is a beautiful picture of the gospel. John is sure to point out that Jesus disrobes a certain reference meant to draw our minds to the reality that Jesus has laid aside his divinity that he might take the form of a servant. And this service to his own will go even further than washing feet in the hours to come. It's going to go to being betrayed, falsely accused, unjustly charged, tortured to the point of near death, and then executed as a criminal by way of an excruciating death on a cross. But Jesus has already told his followers that he is the good shepherd who has the power to lay down, to lay aside his life for his sheep, and also the power to take it up again. So this act of washing the disciples' feet is a very obvious foreshadowing of what is to come. But there's another very important lesson here for his disciples and for us. How does Jesus' school of discipleship start? With an amazing act of love. But with an embedded lesson on the importance of humility. Humility. In humility, Jesus laid aside the power and privilege of his heavenly dwelling place and descended to earth becoming fully human. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. This is what Jesus has done for us. And this is where Jesus begins his school of discipleship. This shouldn't be lost on us. But we also shouldn't miss that the humility that the gospel demonstrates and calls for comes in multiple forms here in this passage. We're going to look at two of these this morning in the time remaining. One perhaps obvious form of humility, but another that we might miss if we aren't paying careful attention. And that is where we will begin. So first, the gospel calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord. The gospel calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord. 
What is Peter's response to Jesus' service of foot washing? Peter resists initially, doesn't he? He resists. Peter is not oblivious to the absurdity of what is unfolding before him. Jesus, his superior, his rabbi, his teacher, the one he has just professed to be Lord, is doing a slave's task. No, sir. I'm not going to let the Lord wash my feet. Notice, though, that Peter's reaction takes the form of humility, but it was really a false humility. It is pride masquerading as humility. What he was really saying was, no, thank you. I don't want you to serve me. I will do it myself. This can be our very natural response to Jesus's gracious action in our lives, too. I remember in the past year or two, one of my own children looking at me and saying very candidly, Daddy, I don't want Jesus to have to die for me. From the mouths of babes. The truth is, if we were to really search our hearts, we would find probably that we despise the thought of God's own son suffering and dying for us. We don't like the thought at all. We don't like it because of our sense of the injustice of it all. An innocent man shouldn't have to die a criminal's death. But that's not all we despise about the thought. We also despise that Jesus' death pronounces judgment on our sinfulness and proclaims us unable to save ourselves. We are the criminals whose place Jesus has taken. And we don't like that thought at all, do we? We live and breathe and move about in a cultural context that's all about personal autonomy. And whether we realize it or not, we're affected and influenced by this idea that we can and should be independent, self-sufficient, self-governing beings. Oh, but the cross utterly destroys these illusions. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, we are brought low. We're forced to see ourselves as we truly are, broken and needy. Before the cross, we have two options. We can, puffed up with foolish pride, say, no thank you, I will do it myself. Or we can recognize that we are doomed and in humility fall on our faces and acknowledge our need for the cleansing blood of Jesus to heal us. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flow be of sin and double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So Jesus tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. There is no other way to the Father. 
if you don't come acknowledging your brokenness, if you don't come to be washed in the blood of Jesus, then you can't belong to him. So let me ask you, have you let Jesus wash you clean? Have you? Because it's very easy to say the words, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. And all of the while still be tightly clinging to our sin and shame and refusing to actually give it to God and allow Jesus to forgive us. It is another thing altogether to allow God to love us in Jesus Christ as we need to be loved. To receive his grace given to us in Jesus Christ. To humble ourselves by casting ourselves at the foot of his cross. And look at what Peter says next. After he concedes to Jesus washing him. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter moves from a refusal to be washed to now demanding how he would like to be washed. And before we get all self-righteous, thinking to ourselves how dense Peter is, Peter, always the one who is rash and foolish, maybe we should examine ourselves. Oftentimes, Peter provides for us a mirror of ourselves. Maybe none of you do this, but I know of at least one person who does. Reveal your love to me, Lord, by helping me to get this blank fill in the blank job house car spouse parking space lord if these results would just come back negative then i would know that you love me demonstrate your love for me almighty god by removing every obstacle from before me and the issue isn't that we present to the lord our requests that isn't the issue The issue is that we base those requests on God's love, and when we don't get those requests, we respond by saying, or at least thinking, God must not love me. Wrong. He does love us. And how do we know? Because he sent his only son to die for us. But what we are really oftentimes praying is this. Lord, let me tell you how you can love me today. Jesus needs his disciples in that room to understand something. He needs us to understand something as well. God loves us as we need to be loved. And his love oftentimes takes what may seem to be strange forms from our human perspective. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Boy, oh boy, does this sound so lovely. But then it takes a dark twist, doesn't it? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Wait, what? Why am I walking through this valley if the Lord loves me? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and your staff? 
Have you ever thought about this, what the purpose of a rod and a staff is? The rod and the staff are a means of defense against the enemies of the flock. And yes, that is a great comfort to know that God is fighting for us and protecting us. But the rod and the staff are also used as a means of guidance and discipline for the sheep. That, too, is a form of protection and ultimately a form of comfort. A sheep that's picking on another sheep or wandering into danger might just meet the wrong end of the rod or might get yanked up by the curved part of the shepherd's crook. So we might know that Psalm 23 promises us that God will care for us, that he will guide us and protect us and provide for us. We might not think through the details of that, though. God's way to protect us and guide us might be through means that we find unpleasant at times. Some of you might hear the voice of your father or mother saying to you, I am doing this because I love you. And the discipline that they were administering may or may not have been a biblical form of discipline. Nonetheless, the phrase they uttered makes little to no sense in the mind of a child. From a very young age, we have trouble drawing the connection between our discomfort and our parents' love. And unfortunately, not much changes as we age. So the writer of Hebrews asks this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We need to understand that God is not our heavenly genie doling out our every wish and desire. Far from us getting the worldly things we desire, we might find ourselves receiving discipline from our good shepherd. But it is for our good. God is our heavenly father who loves us and cares for us, which means at times He disciplines us. We love to think about how God is love, but we hate to think about how God works out his purposes in our lives. The way in which he will sanctify us. The way in which he will use us to bring him glory and expand his kingdom. The way in which he will lead us home to his everlasting peace and joy and righteousness. It might not always be the ways in which we wanted to be loved. Jesus knows that his disciples are about to meet, be met with trials and tribulations of many kinds. If they shrink back when faced with these hardships, believing that God doesn't love them, then they're going to have a very difficult time fulfilling their calling as those sent to live and proclaim the gospel of their Lord. Dear, dearly beloved, we are no different. The hardships we face can destroy us. Or... We can see them as a strange mercy and find God at work in them, refining us for his glory. But this requires us to humble ourselves before the Lord, to recognize our neediness, to look to him alone for wisdom and to cleanse us from our sinfulness, to submit ourselves to the ways in which God knows we need to be loved, not demanding how we want to be loved by him. 
So Jesus responds to Peter's demand. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. The one who has received Christ and been washed clean has received exactly what he or she needs. The one who has received Christ has received in Christ his or her all in all. So dearly beloved, let me urge you today, let yourselves be loved by God according to his all-sufficient wisdom and grace. Second, all those who will be his disciples are called to humble themselves by making themselves servants to all. All those who will be his disciples are called to humble themselves by making themselves servants to all. Verses 12 and following. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We have in Jesus Christ our great example in whom we are called to move from power to powerlessness, from privilege to poverty, in whom we are called to humble service because this is what our master has demonstrated for us. This is the upside-downness of the kingdom of God where the last is first and where the least is greatest, where the road to exaltation comes by way of servanthood. The high calling that Jesus gives to his disciples as ambassadors of his kingdom is, are you ready for it? To stoop low. Our high calling is to become servants. And apparently the disciples received this message loud and clear. Here is Peter, the supposedly dense one, who calls us in 1 Peter to be good stewards of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Keep Loving one another earnestly, he tells us. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Isn't this what Jesus did as the host of the meal in the upper room? He did a radical thing. He washed the disciples' feet himself. It was an act of hospitality. Show hospitality, Peter says, without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. What are we to do with the gifts God has given us to build ourselves up, to increase our own fame and popularity and comfort and wealth? No, to serve one another. Read the letters that the apostles wrote in the New Testament. See how often they call the people of God to humility. If I kept reading reading 1 Peter to you in just a few verses, we would get to these instructions. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And notice what we're called to because it's easy to be overwhelmed by Jesus' instruction to us and to do as he has done. Notice, foot washing is a menial task. It was an everyday necessity. 
It's easy to miss this reality and get all worked up about the great things we should be doing for God's kingdom. We should be going to the ends of the earth to do mission work. We should be trying to save all of the orphan children in India. We should be building hospitals in Haiti. We should be caring for those dying of AIDS in Africa. And we see Christians doing these things and praise the Lord for their service. But we need to know that while God is calling people to do those things, and maybe he's calling one of you to that, he isn't calling everyone to that. The danger is that we simply resign ourselves to thinking, well, I can't do that, and so we just simply move on without heeding the call to become humble servants ourselves. God is not calling every Christian to start an orphanage or build a school or organize a hospital. God isn't calling all of us to do great acts for his kingdom, but he is calling all of us to do simple acts of humble service, everyday acts with great love. There should be no task too small. No work too demeaning for us because we serve a Lord who went to the cross on our behalf. Therefore, we don't want Jesus' instruction to us to do as he does, to simply remain some sort of, in some sort of theoretical realm or to believe it is only for some. We need to be able to translate the example Jesus sets for us into our everyday living. So what does it look like? It begins in our homes. Husbands, and I start with you because you are the spiritual heads of your households. How are you humbly serving your wives? Here's an idea. Paul tells us in Ephesians, among other things, to love our wives as our own bodies. Seems pretty base, but also incredibly practical. And by the way, it is theological since we are one flesh with our spouse. Anyhow, what are some of the things that you enjoy having someone do for you? Do these for your wives, joyfully. From time to time, do some of the normal chores she usually does around the house. Give her a neck or back massage or foot massage at the end of a long day. Wake up early and fix her breakfast. Do her laundry. These are just normal things. This is how we humbly serve one another. And here's where I get into real trouble. Do these things without any expectation of getting anything in return. Men, do you hear me? This is how we serve one another in love. We consider others before ourselves. Wives, do these things for your husband as well. Children, are you listening? Serve your parents and your siblings without grumbling. And then let the way we serve each other in our homes flow into our lives together as a church family. Church, let me commend you for the ways in which you are already doing this. But let me also encourage you to continue and love each other all the more by serving one another. Share your gifts with one another. Help each other in times of needs, but also just because. God's love is not stingy with us, is it? It is lavish and abundant. So let me suggest something. 
You don't need a reason to send someone a card or to visit a shut-in or to cook someone a meal or to offer to babysit for parents with young children or to host a brother or sister in Christ in your home for coffee or a meal. You need no reason. And when we do these things for one another, we're helping each other to grow in humility. We humble ourselves in service, but we are also humbling ourselves as recipients of the service of others. Some of us are very good givers, but not so good at receiving. It's a humility issue. Serving one another is a means by which God edifies his church. But don't stop within this church community. Let our humble service spill over into the larger community. There's many needs in this community. And covenant is not called to fill all of these needs. But God does call us to be an expression of his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. To shine the light of his love by us, his people, walking in love. Even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're called to spread the fragrant aroma of Christ through our humble service in this community. And I pray that our example in this regard would encourage other churches in the community to join with us in working towards the meeting the challenges our community is facing. So dearly beloved, as we enter into the season of Lent, I pray that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus and not be afraid to follow the example he has set for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would help us to come before you humbly. receive the love you have for us in Christ Jesus and Lord to follow joyfully passionately after him who is the author and perfecter of our faith for we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ Amen In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Christ.